Hi, I'm Luisa Matinga. And I'm Gail Galley. And this is An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. We are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline, we are not halfway to achieving them. And so let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. The big stuff. This week, we look at how we can reduce inequality by designing a better world. And we're joined today by the amazing Molly Burke, famous YouTuber, speaker, and disability rights advocate. We are a large portion of society. We're here, we're not going anywhere. Modern medicine has proven to not be curing us. And so shouldn't we be focusing on putting all of those millions of dollars into building a world that is universally accessible to all of the diverse groups of people who live in this world. And we'll also speak with big thinker and design philosopher Indy Johar, who talks about the big changes we need inside to make the changes we need outside. Design is the act of synthesis of creating a new. I think we're in a moment of both having to reimagine our philosophical comprehension of the world, of how we see ourselves even as human beings. Oh, hi, Gail. Morning. How are we doing today? All good. All good. Living in this world that's badly designed for the other people, a.k.a. the tall people of this world. Oh, oh, we've got got a little bit of a size going on. What's going on? You know what? I move through the world quite easily at my size. And I look at how the tall are just struggling. The world is not designed for them. Like, I fit in every chair, I've noticed. I fit in every sofa. Whether my feet are dangling or not, it's meant for comfort. So I can (laughs) lean back. No one can see that on Zoom. (laughs) Economy class. No complaints here. Thank you very much. I fit in. <laughs> How do tall people live in the world? It's not for them. Where do they shop? I don't know for men. I know for women because uh, there's a clothes shop in the UK. It's got so much awful name called Long Tall Sally. And <laughs> it's only for tall women. But also what a terrible name. It's like, get out, you're weird. It sort of says to me. It sounds like a hit in the 80s. The next song is your favourite Long Tall Sally. Long Tall Sally. Do you think it was founded by someone called Sally who was really tall and she's like, I'm I'm not having this. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to set up my own shop and I'm going to call it what I am, Long Tall Sally. (laughs) So British. But it's not just clothes and it's not just height. Whenever you look, I think you see potential inequities in the way the world has been traditionally set up. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a woman and there's an amazing book about this called Invisible Women where it shows, points out things like piano keyboards octave, eight notes, right? I was a pianist. It's designed for male hand. So the reason that there's so many concert pianists who are men is because their hands can actually reach the music that was written by, guess who? Men. Oh, wow. Women, like, we don't get a chance because the, the actual hardware is at just outside our... Unless you're long, tall Sally and you have a massive <laughs> hand. I think it's a, it's a very narrow group of people who design the current world we're living in. That's it's not it. just... These tall men, it's tall white men. I mean, to the point where... Definitely not pregnant men. No, they're never pregnant, those bastards, when they're designing. And here's the thing. Even car safety is designed for a certain type of male. When they do crash test dummies, it's built around a male's body of a certain size. So even I am not safe, let alone women. So even you'd get mushed in the crash? Yeah, I get mushed. I 
You know, I'm happy just to reach the pedals and apparently I still die though. Do you need, be honest, do you need big shoes to reach the pedals or no, are you managing all of them? No, the bricks help. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to live in a world that's designed for everybody, like an inclusively designed world. Something that we don't think about is that when you create a product, you have to think about everybody. When you create a space, you kind of have to think about everybody and not just the guys in the office with you and go, ah, oh, we fit, therefore we're done. Also, not just everybody, increasingly everything. I remember reading about a toilet building program, but what they didn't think about was safety. So they were thinking about sanitation. So yes, it's better to wee in a, and poo in a toilet than it is in the river. But they didn't think about the impact on women's safety because to shut a cubicle door makes you vulnerable. Mm. And they hadn't built any lights or anything with the toilet block. So design is so important. Everything starts with design. Well, that's so excited me about the people we got to talk to in this episode is they begin to help us shift our minds in a way where in your little solitary idea of whatever you're designing, you can start to ask the right questions and start to wonder who you need to include in your conversations. We're, like, we're all designers on the internet. We're all designers of our lives. So with the people that we got to talk to, both philosophically and in practical way, it's really opened up how I now see design. So in this episode, we're talking about how can design be used to reduce inequality? But actually, the more you think about it and thinking of who we've had on so far, you know, everything comes into how we design the world. What are we designing it with? Like, which materials are we using? How are we bringing in nature? How are we making sure that everyone is benefiting from that nature? All people and all things. And also not just now, but also for the future. So thank goodness we have some very clever people on the podcast today. Our first guest has a lot to teach us. Now she moves through the city now as a blind woman, and she has a thing or two to say about how to make those cities more accessible and inclusive, not just for her, but to everyone. Molly Burke, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you here, Molly. Now you have nearly 2 million followers on social media, but for those who don't know you, Please, can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Molly Burke, and I am a social media content creator, commercial model, and motivational speaker who happens to be blind. I'm really excited that you're a motivational speaker. Louisa and I really need motivating, so what have you got for us? <laughs> We're old and wizards. You know, they don't call me motivational Molly for nothing. I'll try to bring my A game today. <laughs> motivational Molly. Well, this is audio, so people can't see your phenomenal jumper. That has motivated me already. So great. pom-poms and... Like details going on. Very multi-textural and a rhinestone water bottle. That's really where it's at. <laughs> you have just told us that you are blind. When did you first kind of start thinking, hang on a second, this world could be designed better for the likes of me? You know, I, I had a long journey uh, as, as a disabled woman. Uh, I was diagnosed with my eye disease when I was four years old and it causes the progressive loss of vision. So I was legally blind from birth, but I always call that version of me myself, because even though I was legally blind, I, you know, played competitive soccer on a sighted team. I could see colors and read print and see faces. But as my vision slowly decreased, that's when all of those realizations started to occur. Um, not only because it was harder for me to function in the world, but because the world started treating me so differently to how they treated me before. So uh -huh. I, I went through a, a lot of self-hatred and pity and wanting to be fixed, to be changed, 
So I really lived in this, what we call the medical model of disability, where I felt that I was the problem and I needed to change to fit society's standards and expectations. And it wasn't until I was 16 years old that I had a special education teacher who taught me about the world of the social model of disability. And I'll be honest, I was so entrenched in the medical model of disability. I had spent so many years fundraising for a cure and speaking out about how sad my life was as a blind person, how I need to be cured, that I I was almost offended when somebody told me, no, you're actually you're fine as you are. You don't need to be cured. I was like, who are you to tell me I don't need to be cured? My life sucks as a blind person. And I kind of went on this journey. Now I'm firmly planted in the social model of disability, which is the belief that I, as a disabled woman, don't need to change. My real disability is the lack of accessibility and universal design in society. Well, it's the first time I'm I'm hearing about it. Can you speak to it a little bit more and what it actually means, maybe specifically to what you would require from the social end of it? You know, when I go out to a restaurant, if they don't have a Braille menu available, then I feel disabled because somebody has to sit there and read the menu to me. But if I go to a restaurant and they hand me a Braille menu, I'm not disabled because I am reading the menu and I'm picking my own food. So what is really disabling me in society is the lack of infrastructure being built for disabled people, which there's a billion of in the world. So we're not some small minority community. We are a large portion of society that has unfortunately just been forgotten about and been othered for far too long. And we're at a point where we're like, okay, we're fed up. It's enough. We're here. We're not going anywhere. Modern medicine has proven to not be curing us. You know, most of us will never be cured. That's just the reality. And so shouldn't we be focusing on putting all of those millions of dollars into building a world that is universally accessible to all of the diverse groups of people who live in this world? And it's proven, you know, through the curb cut phenomenon that when we make the world more accessible to disabled people, we are actually making the world more accessible for everyone. Will you explain what the curb cut phenomenon is? Because it's great. It's this idea that when you make something more accessible, it's actually universal. So the curb cut, which is that slant in the sidewalk where we cross the street, was originally designed for people in wheelchairs or walkers who require mobility aids. But I think we can all agree that everybody pushing a baby stroller, rolling a suitcase on a skateboard or a bike Mm. is benefiting from that curb cut. That's such a great paradigm shift because I go, oh, we should be teaching uh, sign language to everybody at school. Because in, in my head, I go, yeah, that'll help uh, people who speak sign language. I'm like, no, that'll also actually just help me communicate more with more Absolutely. people. Absolutely. also helps me. I mean, think of yeah. there's so many parents who teach their, their children who are not deaf or hard of hearing sign language as babies as simply a better way to communicate with their child. And um, like there must be some exciting products or solutions that are coming up that you can maybe speak to that we might not, you know, notice in our ableness. Can you talk to some of the exciting things that are happening? You know, there's there's lots of exciting things that are happening. I speak to a lot of corporations and I always remind them that, you know, with your design, you have the power to either bridge the gap or widen it. If Uh you consider all users, which does include blind people, then you can bridge that gap and you can take something that was once not accessible and make it accessible and give me and my community that little bit more independence that we so desperately crave. Or if you don't consider us, you can actually take something that was perfectly accessible and make it 
less accessible and widen that gap because you've now taken away that bit of independence that I had. And a big example of this is moving towards touch screen. Everything touch screen. Mm. I used to be able to absolutely never question whether or not I was going to be able to independently pay with my credit card when I went to grab a coffee or buy a pair of jeans. Whereas now a lot of those debit and credit machines are touch screen and they do not have a built-in screen reader. And so all of a sudden where I used to have no problems feeling those tactile buttons and navigating the machine, I can no longer do it on my own. And so it's really important that people are thinking of all users when they're designing their products. That's such a revelatory, obvious thing when you say it. You know, there's so many different ways in which design is is either the answer or like you say, a curse. Yes. And especially I'm so glad that we've got you on because this episode is all about reducing inequalities of all sorts, right? Of, of any sort of walk of life, any kind of ability, disability, gender, orientation. And I think all so many of these things can be fixed at design or averted at design stage. I find like I can always tell when a disabled person was involved in the design or not. Um, because for example, in my last building, you know, many of my friends are in wheelchairs or use mobility aids. And in the last building that I was renting in, I noticed that where you have to swipe your key to get into the building and the button you have to push to open the automatic door are on the opposite sides of the double doors. Uh, And for safety reasons, it locks really quickly after you scan your card if you don't open the door. So by the time you would scan it and then go on over to the button, push it, it was already locked. And I was like, this is mind blowing because you so easily could have put the button right next to the scanner. It was like so clear that nobody disabled was consulted or the fact that in almost every bathroom, the accessible stall for the larger stall is the last one furthest from the door. So we're making the disabled folks go furthest. Wow. I'm like, hello, hello, are we putting that closest to the door? Like most convenient location. The first example also with the door, I'm like, yeah, if you fix that, you fix that for the disabled people, but also just for me. For everybody. Because if I'm carrying my shopping and stuff. For a cut phenomenon, that's the point, right? Like it's all of us when we have groceries in both hands, hit that with the elbow, go on in. When we have our baby in our arms, you know, hiring inclusively just makes the most sense. Like if we want to build an inclusive world, hire inclusively. And I'm wondering now, like we've talked about the corporate side of things, but as you're talking, I guess, legis- legis- mm. legis- legislation, the rules of le- legis- <laughs> legislation. You've got it, you've got it. Thank I believe you. in you. All right, I'll fall out but as far as legislation goes, we've got to start implementing things so that going forward, the world we're actually building is more inclusive. I mean, are, are there people in that space fighting more for like, if a building goes up, it has to have these certain things. Yeah, we're, we're moving in that direction. I think it often feels like two steps forward, one step back. We often talk about like the disability tax. Life is more expensive when you are disabled. Somebody like me who's blind, I can't drive a car, meaning I have to live in a neighborhood that's walkable. We all know you're paying for convenience. Walkable neighborhoods are just more expensive. That's a disability tax that I'm occurring because I am disabled and I have a need to be able to walk to get my groceries, walk to my gym, walk to my nail salon. And I also have to live in a neighborhood that's safe because I am a blind, petite woman who lives in a big city. So I need to pay now for a safer location that is walkable, another expense. But the unemployment rates of disabled people are so high 
So many disabled people are living on government funding. And the way that government funding is structured is basically to keep disabled people in poverty. Um, For example, depending on where you live, you can only have, say, for example, $2,000 in your bank account, including your assets. If I owned a home, even if I wasn't working, the home was passed down to me from my parents when they passed away. It's been paid off now in my name. So I'm not working. I can't get a job as a disabled person because there's so many barriers to get a job. I now am not going to get my government funding each month to pay for my medical care. Oh, that is that is the craziest thing that is I've messed up. ever heard. And so disabled people are literally kept poor. I can't even understand what the logic of that would yeah, be. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And so then people like will act, you know, uh, interabled couples. So where one partner is disabled and the other isn't. And they'll say like, oh, they're just dating them for the disability checks. And we're like, oh, honey, <laughs> I don't think you understand. <laughs> like... Nobody's dating a disabled person for that $600 payment a month. Look, I could go on for days about the injustice of the government and the way they have set themselves up for disabled people. It sounds to bring the parallel in with the oldest known problem that we've been working on. Everything else is catching up, of course, but the gender one. There's targets now, aren't there? It's like you just need, there's 50% of people in the world are women, so you need 50% women in positions of leadership, mayors or city planners. Do you know if that exists? No, despite the fact that we are the one minority that intersects with all other minorities, you can be black, you can be trans, you can be gay, you can be a woman, you can be anything and be disabled. So despite all these things, it's just funny that we're consistently historically left out of the conversation. And I always remind people that we are the only minority community that anybody can join at any time. The majority of disabled people were not born disabled. They become disabled between the ages of 18 and 60. Mm. So the key working ages, that is when most people acquire their disability due to accident or illness. And then, of course, aging. Essentially, everybody, if you live long enough, will be disabled at some point Mm. in life. You shouldn't wait until you need the world to be accessible to fight for the world to be accessible. You know, these Fortune 500 corporations, like they've got the dollars, they've got the power. So it really is on them. And for the average consumer, support the brands who support us. Can you give us more ways that more people who are on the Internet can improve our online content creation uh, to make it more accessible for people? Absolutely. So some very simple changes are, of course, adding captions and not just turning on auto captions on TikTok or Instagram, like actually going in and fixing them. Uh, Also adding alt text, which is essentially an image description to any photo that you're posting, whether it's on your own website or whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They all have a built-in tool that allows you to have photo description. That way it's not going to appear to anybody else. But for me as a screen reader user, it'll automatically describe the picture when I hover my finger over it. Uh, Using high color contrast and bold fonts. Look, I love a pastel moment. I'm a pastel girly, love colors. (laughs) But putting like white text, white squiggly font on a light pink background is the least accessible thing possible. I know it's cute and aesthetic, but there are ways to have your cute aesthetic that are also accessible. Um, So that's another one. Using camel case hashtags, which is where in a multi-word hashtag, you're capitalizing the first letter in each word. That way, again, for screen reader users are... We're able to more accurately hear each word or also those with cognitive delays, learning disabilities, language processing disorders. They're able to more easily read the individual words when they're capitalized versus when it's all bleeding into one. So those are just some quick, easy ones that really take 
basically no more time than you're already putting into your posts, but you're reaching whole new audiences. There's a theme to all the young activists that we speak to on this podcast about how much you can do and, and how kind of actually really enabling and exciting it is when you join forces. So do you draw strength from your peers in that? Have you got a community of changemakers within the broad disability community? Absolutely. I'm just one of so many that have come before me and who walk beside me. I, I don't claim to speak for disability community or for the blind community because that's a burden I can't bear. I'm just one person with one experience and one perspective and, and I speak for myself, but I, I am you know very connected to my community and many of my friends are also blind or disabled and you know share the same views as me or who don't. I think it's important not to live in an echo chamber, but to surround yourself with people who challenge your points of view because it's what makes us be better people. You've been a real inspiration and a joy to talk to. Thanks so much. Thank you guys for having me on. It's been fun. That was fun. It really was fun and very eye-opening. It brings me back to something that um, Tom Cruise, weird, weirdly enough to quote Tom Cruise here, uh, brought up, which was... Oh, is he coming on? Uh, no, no. I called him, but he said, he said, no. He did say, though, while accepting an, uh, an award recently was the idea of Ubuntu, which is a South African, well, it's an African thing, but Ubuntu is, I am, therefore you are. And when she speaks about how solving something for one group of people actually solves and makes life better for everybody, it, 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 it just resonates with that, with that philosophy. So in helping others, we also help ourselves. And it's, it's, you know, to exclude others is to exclude a part of ourselves in this whole designing a better world. I thought it was really good that she um, also points out how you can accidentally make it worse for other people mm. without realizing mm. what you're doing. So as we upgrade, you know, the payment machine, she was saying, as they've now become just touchscreen, that really messes with her ability to navigate payment and suddenly she's not independent anymore. And I bet there's loads more times like that where technology could take you one way unless you have somebody with the disability in the design process who can then say, oh, no, no, but, and therefore we find a soul together. I thought she was brilliant at bringing her issue widely to all issues. Yeah, it's kind of very exciting, though, the, the idea that now the challenge for designers is the idea of don't just make things, quote unquote, better. It's how much better is it for everybody? Because parameters make the creative people even better. I also really liked her just bringing out what individuals can do, like as you post on Instagram or, you know, which font you choose. Mm. I've really thought about it since we spoke to her. It's not something that I've ever thought about before. So I'm, I'm hoping that people listening will get a lot out of that. And yes, it's about how we think. I think there's a big paradigm shifting when we're doing this design. And I really got that sense when we spoke to our next person, Indy Johar, who is an architect by trade, but I think a real philosopher and somebody who goes, before you even put that pencil down, what is your thinking? How have you shifted our thinking to creating a better world? Now, it's Indy Johar, the architect, the co-founder of Project Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to being the idiot. Oh, I'm afraid that is not how it works. <laughs> it's very much Damn. 
the other way around. <laughs> Don't even challenge us. Don't even dare challenge us. We Man. set ourselves up as idiots. And I fear in this episode, this really could be true. Help us understand... How would you sum up what you do? Because I'm definitely going to get it wrong. I don't know what I do. I suppose what I'm interested in is that I think we've created a world built on a bunch of ideas which are maybe dominantly three to 400 years old. Those very ideas that gave us extraordinary development are now effectively creating the landscape of termination, self-terminating us because whether it's CO2, whether it's biodiversity loss, the great extinction event level event we're in the middle of, those things are the externalities of those ideas. And what we require is a new type of transformation, which means going back to recode those ideas and how they code our worldview. It's interesting, you talk about these ideas that were birthed and now they're sort of self-terminating, as you say. Do you think it is the role of design and designers to help redesign that very code. Design is the act of synthesis of creating a new and to see potentiality that hasn't existed. I think we're in a moment of both having to reimagine our philosophical comprehension of the world, of how we see ourselves even as human beings, and to unsee ourselves and to see ourselves to be not have relations, but to be in relations, we are relations, Right now, we see ourselves as individuals, as discrete things, yet we're a multitude of organisms. And I think the project here of, that we're facing is a deep transformation of ourselves and also our relationship with the world, not seeing the world as a dominion to be extracted from, but to be in deep symbiotic relationship with. And I think our imaginations need to be transformed as much as anything else. There seems to be a theme in this uh, season of ours that we've started, which is an almost embracing of complexity. Everything we touch on so far seems to be, forget about one idea. It's about how do we fully integrate ourselves into the complexity of what it means to live on this planet. And I'm trying to bring this back down to the layman, aka myself. So when we start designing, for instance, let's say architecture, what is the philosophy that you would suggest when we design the future? I've been on a journey, which would be to say that I, I sort of walked away from architecture to return to architecture. And I think I'm on that return course now. In terms of actually how I think increasingly about architecture, when you look at a plot of land, I think the first thing we have to look at is the cohabitation of that plot of land. A plot of land isn't about the human domination of that land, but actually looking at the emergent capacity of that land to support many, many life forms. So we should not be just talking about the 8 billion life forms that live on the planet. We should be perhaps talking about the trillions of life forms that we cohabit with this planet. Second thing is looking at that land through the relationships of that land to watersheds, to ecological systems that flow through it, through nutrient systems that flow through it, to see it through a metabolic lens. The next dimension of that land is actually to say you can't own that land, you can only be in treaty with that land. So how do you build a new form of being in treaty with that land, recognizing all these other cohabitants and co-relationships in that? Then, if you're going to build something, then to recognize that you're borrowing the materiality for a moment in time. And then off the back, you have the rights of use of that, of that materiality, but you have the obligations of use. If you're not using those materials, what does that mean? How do you share that materiality? Because materiality is increasingly going to be both scarce and sacred in that sense. And in that thesis, I think architecture will become self-sovereign. 
it will become an agent in its own right, not an asset. We will move from the theory of actually understanding the world through assets and ownership, but recognizing the self-sovereignty of a building and its public utility. And then I think we have to understand a new form of radical reimagination of quality. It's very clear our existing buildings are places of microviolence. So it's a building by a busy road effectively takes away two to three years of your life as a result of persistent noise levels and pollution levels. We know that impacts children very terribly. We know that light pollution destroys our detachment. You're not able to see the Milky Way. So it's new standards, new uses. So I think architecture is going to be deeply reimagined as the deep codes of architecture are transformed in that process. It's, it's great speaking to you a day after I, I found a clip online about how Manhattan was sold by the native people for $1.50. But because their idea of land ownership, it was so ridiculous. It was like, sure, yeah, own this land, whatever, crazy person, and uh, you can have it for $1.50. The people knew the idea of land ownership and separating yourself from nature and your environment was a crazy thing. Moving forward, is there even a place that you can say is getting it right, a, a town, a city, a farm that is, is embracing the, these philosophies and moving towards it? I think we're seeing the, um, the outsets of that everywhere. Rivers in New Zealand are being made self-sovereign and we're starting to do see a whole rights of nature being expanded around the world. And I think what we're going to see is those expansion into different things, like what we're sort of talking about was the house which owns itself or a, or a tree canopy which owns itself. I think whether, whether we talk about the kind of river in New Zealand or regenerative farming, we're seeing the emergent forces are part of this conversation everywhere. What I would say is that, yes, this is a big transformation, but we have done the scale of transformation in society. The Enlightenment was this scale of transformation. I think we, we are going to do this at a different scale and we're going to have to do it. And we have no choice. That's the other thing I'd say. Any other path almost certainly leads us to mutually assured destruction right now. And I think that's what we have to bear in mind. There is no pathway into the future, which means that if Europe and the US make it through the transition and Ghana, India, China doesn't, we're almost certainly mutually short destroyed. And we have to build a mutual pathway of shared development and shared thriving. I like the idea that we've done it before. The Enlightenment, as you said, it was, it's as big as that. But this time we've got technology. Mm. This time we've got media. So we should be able to do an even bigger transformation, as you say, is needed. If, you, if you've listened to this conversation, you've sort of signed up, right? Someone's listening, they go, yes, okay, I get that, I'm in. What would you suggest they do next? I think you can transform virtually anything into this worldview. Use your power in small and big ways because everything is connected. So we're working on employment contracts. What is an employment contract that is an extension of our theory of slavery look like? Remember, everything is coded from an old world perspective. So I think you can pick anything and touch it and make it real. The one piece of light that I'd like to share, though, is that in my experience right now, you could have these conversations literally on the ground with uh, middle of Link Road in Birmingham or you in Sheffield or in other parts of the world, and people viscerally understand it. They can feel it in their bones, right? But the best expression I had somebody come up to me saying, Indy, I feel what you're saying in my bones. I didn't have the words to put it, but I feel it already. They know that a can of Coke being cheaper than an orange is perverse and self-terminating. And I think what our role is to give the words and the institutions to reinforce that, to drive those transformations. So what people can do is actually just almost own up 
to sharing the same feelings, even if it's a struggle to say, I don't quite know what the words are, but something doesn't feel right. Maybe we just need to help people begin the conversations so that, as you say, they can, everything is a decision. And what gives you great optimism in this direction? Yeah, because you sound quite excited. Are you optimistic that we're going to get there? I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that life finds a way, <laughs> to use, it, use an old quote. I think when you can start to whisper these words into pe people's ears and they can feel it in their bones, there's power there. And there's the power of a new possibility that's emerging. So I, I stand with great optimism that actually humans have the capacity to make this transition. And it requires great courage. Everything I say about how dark things are is not to scare us, but to invite us to be bigger, invite us to be much bolder, and invite us to embrace our capacity for this deep transition. Wow. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot to digest there, but I'm hoping the idea of we need to shift our minds is what he was trying to tell us. The idea that we can no longer think of anything as separate, especially ourselves, especially ourselves. And I think that's a theme that's actually coming through in, in the season, in our problem solving. We can no longer separate ourselves and go, this is what this person needs in this city, or this is what this animal needs in this place. It is, how are we looking at the fully integrated idea of everything? And that begins in our idea of ourselves being part of everything. I agree. We need to be more indie. I'm now aspiring to that level of deep thought. Is that the, this season's t-shirt, Be More Indie? Yeah, that's the season's merch. You know what he said about um, people feel it in their bones? Mm. And I, in my bones, yes, just not necessarily yet with my words, but in my bones, <laughs> I understood what he was saying and I felt it. But yes, yes, we do need to stop thinking about these preposterous way that which we plant buildings made of hard things in cities. Um. That, you know, but actually think about how are the people, how many people are going to use that building now and in the future? Which bit of nature does it embody? What's it made from? Our treaty ship with the materiality of the built world is something we need to think about. It resonated with that Sir Attenborough documentary where the first episode showed how the deserts were linked, you know, with the winds blowing through them and collecting minerals that blow into the uh, sky over uh, the oceans that then feed the plankton that somehow feed the whales and the whales. And I was like, oh my gosh, that we know it's connected, but I didn't even know deserts were alive enough to be a part of the oceans, to be a part of our system. When we start um, bringing in the, the nomenclature, which is a word I've been trying to introduce mm -hmm. into you my own speech. should have introduced it during the interview, because uh, then we might have raised our IQ by a bit <laughs> to, to uh, start approximating to his. But to, I mean, yeah, to deserve we've got a long the way conversation to go. with him, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. Sound like Maybe email him afterwards and drop the word <laughs> nomenclature. I will put it in the subject so that he knows oh, this person is deserving that, that of my clever. time. Can you copy me? <laughs> I mean, we're laughing, but he, you know, he's definitely coming from the same place she was. Just it was interesting, isn't it, to have a very specific issue like Molly's representing and then everything everywhere all at once that he's representing. But really, uh. as you say, the interconnectivity is what connects them both. You know, we are not islands. We have to think about everybody. Otherwise, we are never going to reduce inequalities. And let's just not think about us as individual humans and our interactivity. This is us, the planet, the system. How do we get it all working together for a better designed future? While we're still remembering all these big words and stuff, I think we need to wrap this episode up 
and maybe get into that uh, idiot's guide in 30 seconds. Okay. We'll start with the big words. So I'm going to count you in with your big words. 30 seconds to redesign a better world. Three, two, one. Add alt text to your social media posts. Simple. Add captions and avoid pastel colors. Yes. Simple things that bring everybody in and translate what's in your bones to conversations. That's it. And trust your instincts when it comes to what is right and wrong about how we're living today. Yes. And while you're doing that, practice the small changes you feel are right. You are building the community of the future. Hire inclusively if you're hiring. People have the answers if you let them. Yep. And if you're a designer, architect, developer, be aware of the power your design can have to make change in the world. I mean, basically, get involved. Get on board. Get involved. Get involved. That, that's what it is. People are already doing it. Get Just involved. Get involved. <laughs> stuck, get stuck, stuck in. in. And that is hey. it. Time's up. But if you want to find out more, go to globalgoals.org. Start with goal 10, but you'll find a whole lot more up there in terms of how to get involved. Well, that's me, Loisa Matinga. And me, Gail Galley. See you next time. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is an audio production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yolaine Goffin, Eli Block, Ellie Winter-Taylor, and Ivor Manley. The executive producer is Ellie DiMartino. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, share on your socials, and leave a review. It helps other people find us because we like being found. And the more people find us, the more people are saving the world. 